Welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of the Let's Get Serious podcast. Today I bring you the personal story of Josh. A big focus of this episode is Josh's experience with parental alienation, and he really does an amazing job explaining what this term actually means, how it takes shape, and what we can do to help children and parents experiencing this form of terrible abuse. I recorded this interview early in the summer, uh, and I think it's really important that it's out there before the high holidays, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, uh, so that we can keep parents like Josh in our prayers and pray that this should be the year when this horrible pain finally ends. And also ask God that to make sure that if, if we've never gone through it, hopefully to make sure that we never experience something like this. Uh, so without further ado, let's play the intro and get right into it. You're listening to the Let's Get Serious podcast, the relationship podcast for from men, single, married, separated, divorced. There's something here for the whole Hevra. Here's your host, Nathan Gettysburg. Josh, thank you so much for joining me on the Let's Get Serious podcast. You're very welcome, Nathan. Glad to be here. So Josh, I would love if you could just introduce yourself to our listeners, to whatever extent you feel comfortable. Okay. I'm in my mid-40s. I have four daughters. I've been divorced for, halakhically, I've been divorced for 13 and a half years. The civil divorce was just a few months later. I have got a counseling background. I still counsel people in a variety of different capacities, although I, I no longer do it professionally. And I'm really here to educate as best I can, particularly about the perils and difficulties of parental alienation. And I really appreciate it. Uh, it's such a difficult topic. And I know from my experiences, I never knew anything about it. never even could have imagined such a thing existed. Um, so it's uh, really important to speak about it and especially someone like you to tell us about, tell about it more from the, uh, from ground zero. Just, just before we get more into the heavy stuff, do you mind telling me a little bit about when you got married? How old were you when you got married? Uh, and what type of uh, single guy were you? Like, were, were you, did you come from a yeshiva background? What led up to you getting married at what age? And let's go from there. Okay, Sure. I got married at the age of 23. I came from a bit of a yeshiva background. I wouldn't say yeshiva-ish, but uh, having gone to various yeshivos, um, my my ex-wife was the first person that I'd ever dated. And in so doing, I've done a lot of, particularly, you know, I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but from the separation, from the points of the separation, and since really, done a lot of, internal work and and come to realize that it was really due to a lot of my my own inner wounds and why I was fairly desperate to get married and it was a it was somewhat of a shidduch process but not exactly in as much as that my ex-wife and I knew each other a bit beforehand and she had asked the Shadchan to set us up. Mm-hmm. But um, I, I think neither of us were really prepared 
to be in a healthy relationship. Uh, I, I think um, I don't want to point fingers. And yet I, I also think it's important to recognize things as they are holistically. And therefore I say this with a bit of caution. And that is both of us came from dysfunctional homes and did not have the healthiest of models of what it means to be in a romantic relationship slash being married. Were either of your parents divorced? No. Hmm. No, there were there were times uh, that things in my with my parents that things were contentious, and I certainly knew about it. And uh, I knew there were points where my parents had thought about splitting up, although the the Bar Hashem they never did. And parenthetically, I, I do give my parents tremendous credit. My father passed away last year, and Sorry. Uh, I. Uh, thank you. I only share that in as much as coming through realization as well, and uh, through the you know the the process of of Shiva and the year of mourning of Avelos, and come to certain realizations, and uh, all, you know being able to accept my parents with their imperfections and with their flaws, and yet still be able to see my parents as well with their greatness. And I, I think, especially in today's world, unfortunately, it's been hitting the Orthodox Jewish community much more so. I just think there's something to be said, something to acknowledge for the commitment of my parents having been married for as long as they were. They were just shy of 50 years and to to fight and to endure despite their dysfunction. And that said, I've also come to realize that uh, because I didn't have that modeling, I struggled mightily to be able to be in a healthy relationship and I, because I myself was not healthy. And I was mm -hmm. far from a stellar husband. Quite the contrary. I, I did things that I should not have done. I said things that I should not have done. I behaved in ways that were were just were not appropriate. And and I, I didn't know how to to deal with my emotions in a particularly healthy way at the time. So having that baggage and then getting into a relationship with a woman who too has her own struggles, although she may not recognize them, but, uh, you know, I, I, there's nothing I can do about that now. Not that I could have really any, done anything about it back then either, because that's her burden to carry or really her issues to work through if she shows, chooses to do so or not. But nonetheless, there, there were some things that brought us together, obviously, but we were just not a really good pairing. Uh, we, we certainly did not bring out the best, in each other at all. On the contrary, I think we brought out the worst in each other. Wow. I think it's really big of you to admit your flaws and take all that responsibility on yourself. One thing kind of sidetrack that came up, and I I think it's a good place to ask of it because um, it's such a hot topic nowadays, which is you mentioned that growing up there was some dysfunction, but you also give your parents a lot of credit. They stayed together. A lot mm -hmm. of people now would say, you know, because of the effect it, it apparently had on you, they should have probably gotten divorced. That's what probably a lot of people would say. I'm, I'm saying I don't I'm not saying that. But what, what are your thoughts about that? Do you think that that would have been better for you? No, I respectfully disagree with that notion because divorce is absolutely devastating to both parents and more devastating to children, even in the best of situations. And we still would have had to contend with the challenges of life. But without doing so under, if you will, the canopy of protection and 
whatever that means, because of course I, I'm just speaking to the unknown of what could have been had my parents gotten divorced. So, you know, having to deal with difficulties of life as a child divorce would have been that much greater. And I, I don't think my parents would have done themselves nor any of us a, a service by getting divorced. I think on the contrary, at least for those of us that are willing to look introspectively and, and willing to take what I like to refer to as the balcony view, you know, being able to reframe things and look at things more holistically and see things perhaps more accurately from the balcony, mm-hmm. that I think there's a lot more richness and there's a lot more value that I've gotten out of my parents staying together than I would have gotten had they gotten divorced. But again, oh, I'm just speaking to an unknown. Sure. Right. These things can never be uh, double blind, cross-tested or whatever, because every situation <laughs> is its own unique situation. Yeah. And you can't know. I'm also curious, by the way, you mentioned that your ex was the first girl you mar- uh, um, went out with what was dated, yes. uh, that you dated. Was it did she date other people before you, too? Or, uh, or yes. was, were you? Her- oh, OK. I'm just curious uh, mm-hmm. if it's one of those cases of like just to meet for the first time ever and. She, she had she had dated uh, she had dated for several years before. So that's interesting mm-hmm. that uh, she had dating experience. She met other guys and she had her sights on you, you know, to the extent mm-hmm. that she asked the shadchan, and you know, the rest is history. Mm-hmm. So, um, h- how long were you married for, if I may ask? So we were officially married for ten years, but we were separated for the last two. Mm-hmm. So eight, about eight years together, which is like. Yes considered to be the death valley of marriages seven eight year seven year eight mm-hmm. that's really interesting um and are you uh willing to speak about what the separation was like how it came about you know however much you're comfortable sharing but with an eye toward the mistakes that you feel you made and what you think you could have done to you know, make it easier. Okay. Let's, let's start with that. But you know what? I I also, I also like to ask about, you know, as things broke down, when did you reach, let's, let's go with this first. Like, when did you reach the point of the realization that this is going to be a divorce? And before that, like, what did you try to do? Or did you want to, did you think this was worth saving? Or did you agree that basically you realize like, this is going to end and end the slow death over two years? Or a quick one, maybe at that point you didn't know, but like, what was the process and your mindset as it reached the end? So I tried saving the marriage and there were moments where I was in denial mm-hmm. and there were times where I, I, I still wanted it to work. And the truth is even the morning, I'm sorry, the, the, the evening before I gave her the get, I still wanted it to work. Parenthetically, mm-hmm. my former uh, Rebbe. And I'll get into mm-hmm. why I now call him my former Rebbe. Yeah, that, that's... Another, perhaps later on, but at the, for okay. the moment, anyway, my former Rebbe had sat with her for the better part of several hours, trying to convince her that I had been working on myself and that I had been trying, and that, that 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 there was reason to turn the corner, as it were. And she wasn't interested. And in contrast, my former Rebbe spent perhaps 15 minutes with me basically telling me in no uncertain terms that it was over and that uh, it's just time to to end things and to move on. And um, 
that was it. I mean, the, the, the separation happened in a manner that I, we were living in a, in a particular town where I had struggled to find a reasonable income. And mm-hmm. one can imagine that also brought great stress into the marriage, aside from all the other issues that we'd had. And so I traveled to another city for work. And ostensibly, it was just meant to be purely that. Didn't have, at least in my mind, in my heart, I didn't see it as any other kind of arrangement, simply that I was traveling to this other city where I'd be there for a few weeks and I'd come back. And that was the plan. And I noticed just after a few weeks of me being in this other city that it became an emotional divorce as well, or rather an emotional separation. And with even within that separation, I made some mistakes. I was impatient about certain things. And, and uh, I, there's one particular thing which I'm not going to mention, but I did rather, impul- I was impulsive and it was took the advice of someone else. And I'm still wrong for doing it because uh, ultimately I'm, I'm the responsible for having taken that action. I should not have done. Um, either as it may, it was the realization though that she was emotionally separated. So all the while though, I still was willing to work on myself and I did. And then I was there in this other city for approximately 13 months. I'd come back every few weeks and uh, I was actually in the house, but she didn't really want to have much to do with me. So it was, it was a very cold and difficult process. And I'd spend time with my daughters and I'd take them out. And there were times where my ex was noticeably cold, dare I say, even a bit hostile, where I remember distinctly my daughters had even asked me why, I don't remember exactly how my daughters had worded it, but something to the effect of why is mommy treating you that way? And I remember defending her because I didn't think it was appropriate to blame her, certainly not to to the children and i was saying something to the fact that you know mommy's upset and it's okay sometimes when we when we're upset we don't say the kindest things and that was that so that was for 13 months and i came back to that sit to that same city where my my wife and my daughters were living you know with the hope of trying to move back in and save the marriage and actively work together as a couple but she wasn't willing to allow me to come back into the house and so I would see the I'd see my girls on a regular basis because it is a small community. So I'd see them on a regular basis, you know, after school, see them in Shul and Shabbos and so forth. While we were separated, sometimes I'd have them for meals. Sometimes I did not. I didn't really have a prim place to stay. So for the better part of a year, I was nomadic. I had a room in someone else's apartment who was quite literally suffering from mental health issues. He was paranoid schizophrenic. And at one point, he actually on several occasions, he tried killing me, but it got to the point where it was just too much. And so I I left that apartment and there were, there were moments where stretches at a time where I was homeless. Um, I'm living in my van. I would sleep in the mikvah, was open, sleep in the shul. Um, um, I wasn't really making much money. So even though I was separated, but I still thought that I would do the honorable thing. And though, you know, I couldn't afford much of a place for myself. Um, I tried to do my best by still sending my wife and giving my wife some money because I was still trying to operate from the space that we're going through a difficult time, but we'll get back together. 
Um, so um, there were times as well where people took me in, you know, for a week or two at a time. I remember being with somebody for a few months and they were very gracious and kind, but it got to the point where they could no longer host me either. And so it was back to the van. Definitely wow. challenging, that's, that's, but at the same uh, time, yeah. you know, but it also, I, I think, Baruch Hashem, you know, thank God with some maturity and reframing uh, in, in retrospect, it, it taught me resilience and taught me to be able to dig deep and, and see what I'm really able to to handle, what, I, what I'm capable of managing. That sounds like you were at absolutely rock bottom. I can't imagine, uh, especially how that looks to your kids. I don't know. Were they aware of like your living arrangements? I mean, they must have sensed. No. So they knew about this apartment with this, uh, unfortunately, this unwell gentleman. Okay. And, yeah. Um, and there were then they knew that I'd moved out, and that there were times where I was sleeping in other people's houses. They were aware of that, but they didn't know about my my times, my periods of homelessness. That I was very particular. In fact, there was one, I remember very distinctly one morning, unfortunately, my, my now ex-wife, she was very, and I still think she is very image conscious. And so I remember distinctly one morning that I was, I was sleeping in my van and there were some folks who had walked by on the way to shul because I parked her just outside of shul so I can get the chakras. And someone had walked by and saw me and that I was sleeping. It was fairly early. It was like, I don't know, maybe 5, 30, 6 o'clock in the morning and so then the next time i, I want to say it was that evening that i went by to to see my daughters you know to pick them up my ex-wife had asked me uh, if i if i was living in my van and i remember initially not really giving her a straight answer because i recognized that if i would have told her the truth she first of all she would not have been able to handle it and secondly she would have used that as a context or a pretext to not allow me to see the girls. So, right. so at that point, I um, I lied. I, I told her that I just had a rough night and I was just, I couldn't sleep and I was just taking a nap in my van uh, waiting for showers. Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, and, and she bought that? I think so. I mean, she didn't give me uh. an argument about it. That, uh, and she at least... For that time, she continued to allow me to see the, the girls, you know, but it was definitely challenging because everything was based on her decisions. It was always at her discretion. It was always under her control and me following and abiding very strictly to what she had said and what she had wanted. That's That sounds like it's very common. Um, but at the time, there was no custody, like there was no court involvement or anything. It was just... Well, no, we, 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 there wasn't even at that point, there was not even a, a separation document. The separation document, interestingly enough, only really came once I was served with divorce paperwork that there was a, the, the, that it was basically backdated because in the state that we were living, you have to be mm -hmm. separated for at least a year. And so mm. it was back, you know, so when I was, I was served with the divorce paperwork, I was also served with a separation document stating that I was, that we were separated, excuse me, some, you know, at least I don't remember the exact date, but it was certainly, you know, a year prior to be able to fulfill the divorce requirement. Wow. And at that point she was probably, this was already in the works for her. This wasn't like. Oh, a... very much so. Very, very much so. I, I'd, right. I'd found some pretty, unfortunately, some disturbing things as well. Wow. 
did you feel like there was any concern for you from her end? Like, was she, did she like kind of feel bad about how much, what you were going through? Did she make any efforts to like, Hey, come, let's, you could have dinner tonight or something. I made some extra food or, Hey, do you want to take while the we girls to the park while you were separated? Yeah. No, no, mm-hmm. uh, not at all. Um, on the contrary. And by, by way of example, she's, uh, unfortunately, she's one of these uh, people who, who doesn't believe she follows this notion that, that men should not show her emotions. Um, I did not say it, frankly, even she follows this notion that women certainly should not share tear or show tears in public. And so I remember very distinctly going to one of our daughter's events at school. I don't remember exactly what it was. And she basically gave me a forewarning, something to the effect of, you know, it's okay for you to, sh- to come, but you better not cry. This is supposed to Pardon? This no, is- this is prior. No, this is prior, oh. prior to divorce. We were, we, we were separated. And again, at right. this point, we weren't even legally separated because there wasn't, there wasn't, there was no document stating that we were officially separated. Wow, that's mm-hmm. that's really fascinating. Um, I mean, it's it's hurtful. It's just it's uh, in, in several different dimensions. Um, it's something that I've like seen a pattern about, and I've I think I've read about. There is some there is, there is an art to a man crying that a woman can there's a there's a narrow band where it's like acceptable not not everyone everyone everybody's different but some women or i I would say most women just in general don't want to see their man crying or any man crying with set with special exceptions um but just showing emotion like that it's a delicate thing that's what i'm saying i I don't know if i agree with you but I, I so it's interesting because it, what I find fascinating is that certainly my my separation was a bit of an impetus to get much more involved in relational dynamics and particularly as it pertains to marriages and my job thereafter, which perhaps we'll get to, I, I became very involved in a lot of marriage counseling and things of that nature, and I still study these things today. And so what I what I've come to discover is that in general, when people are uncomfortable with someone else crying, it's because the person who's uncomfortable, the disliker of emotions, if you will, is conf- has to confront their own vulnerabilities, has to confront their own discomfort. So it's much easier to then project and to blame the more emotional person, in this case, a romantic partner or, or formerly romantic partner. It's much easier to blame it on the other rather than take ownership for their own difficulties, their own discomfort in emotions. So instead, right. the men get blamed because women will, will perceive a man who's more readily open to being emotional as an affront to their femininity, because as a woman, they're supposed to be more emotionally available and present. And yet mm-hmm. here is a man who's much more emotionally expressive than they are. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. Again, this is just this is just one perspective. I mean, yeah. we can go, you know, we can talk for hours about these various differences and nuances, but I know this isn't quite the the platform and for what you're seeking. Well, I mean, it it, it all fits in, but I guess um, we should probably spend the time more 
talking about your experience, especially with your daughters uh, following um, the divorce and, you know, where you're at now, that's, I think the, the priority, but I mean, you, you really have a lot of good perspective on a lot of things. So it's not easy to limit these kind of episodes. So let's like skip ahead, I guess, a little bit, because I, I do want to hear more. And I, I, I do want to, I do want people listening to understand uh, what happens or what could happen and what's really happening way too often these days. Um, how many people are going through this kind of pain of what happens to the parent-child relationship after a divorce? Like, what, you know, what happened in your case? And then we could get into, you know, more things, more details maybe, and things that you've learned along the way to try to repair, try to prevent. But like, mm -hmm. yeah, can you tell me, because I don't, I actually honestly don't really know like where you're at right now in terms of your relationship with your children. So I am, I am an alienated father, and I think it's very important, particularly in a platform like this, which I, again, I am deeply grateful to you, Nathan, that you, we have such a platform to be able to share this. I think it's very important to distinguish two pathologies that unfortunately are growing in the world, but particularly in the Orthodox slash from community. So one pathology, although some people call all at one of the same, but based on the, the studies that I've seen and, and the subject matter experts in this field, there definitely is legitimacy to state that they're two different pathologies. So one pathology is what's called adult child estrangement. And that is when a child reaches adulthood, that for a variety of reasons, that the child chooses to do sever ties with the parent, right? There's another pathology, which is called parental alienation. And unfortunately, it's the subject of great debate because there are some, in fact, many in the mental health community who don't believe in parental alienation. They don't even believe that exists. I've come across literature where there are people who are claiming that it's, now I'm going to get into the, bit of the political realm, but not intentionally so. It's just, unfortunately, this is what it is. There are some who state unequivocally that it's toxic masculinity. Mm which I find very interesting because what, how do you explain when there are alienated mothers, mm. right? You can't have it right. both ways. So if, so if, it, if there is an alienated mother because of toxic masculinity, because the, the former husband is being toxic, then how do you explain situations when the mother is the alienator? Well, it's also because it's the husband's fault, obviously. Uh, unfortunately, that often is the default. But what I'm saying is logically, if, if we're going to state that parental alienation or the very notion of parental alienation doesn't exist because those who are claiming that parental alienation exists are doing so under the guise of toxic masculinity, then how do you explain the presence and the occurrence, the right, growing right. preponderance, particularly in the from world of husbands or former husbands who are alienating the children? Right. right. So no, again, I, I'm just saying you'll have those... the same individuals who stay. Oh, no. because that's also toxic masculinity. You exactly. cannot have it both ways. Exactly. No, it's the same people who they'll say both. They'll say if the father's right. alienated, it's because he's toxic. If the mother alienates him, it's because he's toxic and he had to be alienated. Right. So, so either I, way, so it's, I, I it's share, his fault. Right. So I share that as important background because what what parental alienation is briefly stated is a campaign by one parent to sever any relationship between the children and the other parent. So you have the alienator and you have the targeted parent. And it is a campaign, unfortunately. And not only is, is it, it child abuse, but if 
we understand the pathology of what the alienator is trying to do to the targeted parent is also a form of domestic abuse. In as much as the real goal of alienators is to destroy the targeted parent at any cost. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the children suffer unspeakably in ways that yeah. the children themselves are not even aware. So right. unfortunately, you know, there are times I'm, I'm part of a support group and, I, and, and as, I can, as I mentioned, I continue to counsel a lot of people, particularly alienated parents or, or, or parents who are going through contentious custody challenges. I, I certainly did not choose this and I'll get, to, I'll get to that in a moment, how it came to be. How, how you I, came to be alienated, you mean? Well, how I came to be alienated, unfortunately, quite literally the, the morning after I gave her the get. I, I saw overt alienating tactics. You know, if you want me to give you specifics, I will, but otherwise I'll, I'll, I'll keep those to myself and continue. It's up to you. Oh, uh, I mean, I think that would be, if you're comfortable with sharing that, I think that would be extremely sure. helpful to have. Sure. Like, yeah. I mean, like a real example, whatever you're comfortable with, obviously. Right. So, so perfect. Okay. So this is what happened. Um, perhaps ironically, despite my, my, my ex-wife's coldness throughout the separation, ironically, the morning of me giving her the get, I got a text message or a phone call. I don't remember because this is, you know, smartphones were not, were, were just becoming a thing. And I don't, and I had just gotten myself a cell phone. So I don't remember exactly. And it's really not so important. But the point is she reached out to me and she invited me for breakfast. And it was just very odd. But I said, yes, I acquiesced and we met for breakfast and there we, we talked about some of the more specific things that we were going to agree to once I had given her the get. And two things were most notable, and that is that we would, as, a, as co-parents, we would tell our daughters that we had gotten divorced. And another thing that we had agreed upon is that, just a little bit of important background, is that I knew because of the difficulty in being able to have a job there, as well as as a small community, as much as I wanted to stay there, but it was no longer viable for me to do so. So I knew that basically as soon as the civil divorce was completed, I would leave. I would, I would unfortunately, I'd have to leave my daughters behind. And so therefore I had, we had, we had agreed that for the next several months until the civil decree was completed, that on Friday night, I would still come over to their house and I would stand outside and I would give my daughters brachos. I'd you know bless my my daughters as is the custom on on Friday night for fathers to do so. Mm-hmm. And she had agreed. And the very next morning, after I had given the get, at about ten o'clock or so, she called me to tell me that she had already told the girls that we were divorced, and she told me that she had spoken to. The rabbi, the the Masada Haget, the person responsible for arranging the get and writing the get, she had spoken to him as well as the rabbi in, in the community in which we were living that she's not comfortable with me coming to the house to give the girls brachos anymore and wow. that I wasn't allowed to do so. And Holy so God. I immediately called, pardon? Wow. No, that's just, that's just such a stab in the, in the heart. Holy cow. Right. And so... Right. So I immediately called the Masada Haget and I said, Rabbi so-and-so, with all due respect, but how can you offer a halachic decision without speaking to both parties? He said, what do you mean? I spoke to your your wife. I said, again, respectfully, 
Did she tell you that we had had an agreement the morning before we had come to see you that we were that she would allow me to come and give blessings to the girls? He said, no, I, she never said anything like that. I said, then how can you possibly render a halakhic decision? He said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, you'll have to take it up in court. And I was just beside myself. Oh, oh my God. I can't imagine. That's like, who am I supposed to turn to? No, there's no, and, and that's, and that's, I, I'm not even surprised to hear that the, the rabbi said that because it's one of the most horrible things I hear is that from the, like before you had given the get, the rabbi would have been much more eager to help you. I, I'm sure of it. He would have said, okay, I'll talk to her, would have arranged it. And now you gave it and he's like, oh yeah, go to court. And you're like, and you're just, you're just bleeding out. With mm-hmm. in in pain because you just agreed to something the mo- you didn't even ask for much that's really nothing like what are you asking for already standing outside the house to see your own children just to to give them a bracha a blessing and that is is now like within hours I mean I I, I this mm-hmm. is just this is just mind blowing I can I can not imagine the packet I could imagine it a little bit because I've had little bits like that but this is. Uh, I'm happy you're sharing like this kind of example. It's just so just really brings it out how raw and real this is. Uh, I'm, I'm so sorry. There are more examples, that, you know, but but that was the first real overt alienation tactic where I realized that this was not going to be a simple, easy situation. And I, I was still hoping and trying. So instead, I, I didn't yell at her, um, but I remember emailing her that very evening and i still have the emails and basically you know she made excuses for herself and unfortunately it just set a course to eventual alienation how often i think it's also very important to recognize that parental alienation only occurs because there are people who enable it to happen you know alienation parental alienation cannot happen in a vacuum onto itself in other words, if, mm-hmm. if more people, if there was greater awareness in the community, and if people took a, people recognized it being what it really is, then then the, there would be outrage, and people would be people would be protesting, people would be be blasting the names of alienators, particularly in the in the from world, I believe, in, in much mm-hmm. the same that we're so quick as a community to assail and protest against alleged get refusers. Mm-hmm. You know, which I, I again, I don't want to go off the rails here because, but I do, th- I do see a lot of similarities, and I, I have some disagreements mm-hmm. with with some fellow alienated parents who who fundamentally don't believe they're one of the same. At least how to deal with these situations, but I, I I still believe that if if the the from community would recognize that these are abuses that are going on every day, and recognize that we that those of us who are alienated have done nothing wrong to our children and then they would do something about it because we cannot reckon with this on our own and as much as being able to affect change i can continue to educate i can continue to challenge i can continue to to speak to mental health professionals in the from world which i also do on a regular basis i can speak to the few rabbanim who are willing to to listen a little bit i can speak to some you know child advocates but until there's action from the community, or at least until there's a, a person of note who's willing to put his or her reputation on the line, not mm. for not for my sake, but for the sake of our children, then unfortunately nothing's going to really change. So therefore it becomes necessary to continue to educate and to challenge the, you know, the constitution, if you will, of the way people carry themselves. 
if I could do anything about it, and I, I hope to, I hope to make my own little small impact on this issue. And, you know, I'm thankfully, and I hope never to be alienated uh, in that way. I, I don't I mean, consider, my, I mean, I'm, yeah, I mean, I don't consider myself alienated now. It, it, it was attempted and luckily I'm in a good place, but it, I know that it's going to be ongoing and I'm going to have to constantly be vigilant. But I want to know from your experience, because you mentioned something that's just so important. You mentioned that there are enablers and mm-hmm. and that if if the enablers knew what they were doing, maybe many of them. Well, you tell me if many of them knew what they were doing. First of all, the qu- first question is, who are the enablers? And then the second part is, are they self-aware or are they just, you know, obliviously enabling? Really, really important and great questions. So some of them are aware of what they're doing and some of them ha- will align themselves completely with the alienator. Interestingly enough, there's a term for enablers in the mental health communities, uh, the psychology community that's referred to as flying monkeys. If you remember mm-hmm. the flying, or if, for those of you, you listeners who are familiar, the Wizard of Oz, the, you had the flying monkeys with the Wicked Witch of the West. And what did they do? They were the creatures who would carry out the biddings of the Wicked Witch. They enabled her. They allowed her to wield the power that she did. And so flying monkeys, in the case of abusers, particularly parental alienators, they aid and abet and they enable, they ennoble the alienators to do what they do. And sometimes they actually carry out the bidding by hosting the children. Sometimes they are friends, sometimes they're family members, sometimes they are Rabbanim. In my case, my former Rebbe, many times times as well, unfortunately, which I continue to hear about, it's it's mental health professionals because there's a grave misunderstanding about parental alienation. It's extremely counterintuitive. And there's this grave mistake that very much tied into the other pathology of estrangement that I mentioned, that there's an assumption that if if children are alienated from a parent, it's because that parent must have done something egregious to deserve not having a relationship with the children, which is unfortunately the furthest thing from the truth. I think that's what most people assume. And that's before I knew anything, I, I probably would have assumed the same thing. Mm-hmm. Like, right. So, I, so, right. So, and I appreciate that. I appreciate your honesty. And, and, and again, and, and forgive me if I may, I'll piggyback or go even one step further. And, and as much as that, when, after I got divorced and I eventually got back into the dating world, I I had the same misunderstanding as you, and I was vehemently opposed to the notion of even going out with a woman who had children but did not see her children on a regular basis because I had assumed that surely she must have done something terrible to no longer have custody. I have since come to the realization, when it, and it's, it's Baruch Hashem, thank God, it's been like this for years already that I've had the awareness that it's just simply not true, that there's some really horrible men out there were vicious and have managed to to gather a crowd of flying monkeys who collude with them to keep their precious children from the mothers. In yeah. fact, and so so here's something really interesting, particularly as it pertains to COVID. You know, during lockdown. So as I mentioned, I'm I'm part of a, a support group for alienated parents, and uh, a while back, because of my counseling background, I was somewhat playfully called the counselor mental health counselor, if you will, for the group. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very cute. And I thought it was very sweet. I, you know, I appreciated the nod, but it certainly wasn't my intent. And yet during COVID, so I'd gone to a mentor of mine 
Now, this gentleman himself had been a pulpit rabbi in a, in a community. He, he, as well as a very accomplished hospital chaplain, he's accomplished chassan teacher, you know, teaching grooms in preparation for, for the marriage. He continues to be involved in marriage counseling, as well as he's a much more uh, modestly in the, in the particularly in the Orthodox community, he's also a very accomplished sex therapist. So I, I'm sharing this just because, you know, he's not just a fellow who decided, okay, well, you know, Josh, you know, you need to do something, but rather he was aware of what I had been sharing. And until I started sharing about my situation, he was not familiar at all with parental alienation, but he, to his credit, he was a great student, if you will, despite him being almost old enough to be my own father. So I got a call from him shortly after COVID began and he said, um, you know, you know, he'd always treated and he still does treat me very collegially. He refuses to call me by my first name. He'll always call me rabbi and followed by my last name. So he, he calls me up and he says, Rabbi, you need to start having your phone on over Shabbos. Wow. And I was a bit, bef- yeah, and it, right. I was a bit befuddled. And I, and I said, you know, Rabbi so-and-so, why is that? I mean, I can appreciate why other medical personnel or mental health professionals perhaps would have their phones on, but why me? I kind of suspected, but I just this things I, getting I real out there. I, I didn't right. I, I didn't, right. So I didn't want to presumptuous. He said, "Look, you have far more experience as an alienated father yourself than I'll ever have, and you know this field much more so than any other mental health professional that I've come across in the from community." You need to be available to answer any alienated f- person who knows you on Chavez. You need to be a mental health first responder. And tragically, for the better part of the year, without exaggeration, a typical Friday night was spent until two or three o'clock in the morning. And I was on my phone, whether answering phone calls or text messages from despondent parents who wanted to commit suicide because the pain of alienation was so deep and so, and, and just so overwhelming. And I sometimes, you know, even as COVID lockdown started to ease up and I would go to some friends, I kept my phone on and sometimes I'd excuse myself. Um, or sometimes I, I'd forget to turn my phone off, you know, the, the ring and my phone would, uh, would beep during the Shabbos meal. And, you know, and I'd excuse myself and Baruch Hashem, thank God, you know, the, my friends were aware of my situation. They were also aware of what I'd been doing, or at least some of them were not aware of the counseling that was provided, but they knew me well enough that I didn't just have my phone on for no particular reason. You know, there were times, as I said, I had to go out in the middle of the meal to, to counsel and to, to, to bear the burden, to share the burden with an alienated parent who wanted to leave this world. And then it followed up again on Shabbos. And then, you know, many nights during the course of lockdown. And, and so it's not to say to pat myself on the back, but on the contrary, it's like, I didn't, no, it's, you know, it's, it's I, so I never... important to hear it from the front lines. Um, I, I cannot imagine. And it's just, just to, to hear these things from someone who actually was dealing with it on the, you know, you dealt with multiple people, you saw it happening. I, I, I cannot. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for interjecting, but I'm still yeah. dealing with it. I mean, sure enough, like within the past three yeah. weeks, I've had, an, I've had another four people reach out to me. What was it harder during the lockdown or was it like, what was it if they were completely alienated? Let's say someone's completely alienated. Is it harder to be in lockdown, completely alienated or now regular life? Well, that's a really great question. You know, 
I don't honestly, I, 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 I cannot answer you honestly, because unfortunately, I was already alienated from my, my children at that point. And, and there were certain things. I mean, there was a period of time where I started to have a bit more of a relationship with my oldest daughter. But unfortunately, I mean, she, excuse me, she was studying outside of her mother's home, but because of uh, because of COVID, so she had to return to her mother's home. And within just a matter of months of being in her mother's home, she she basically cut me off and she accused me of meandering into her life when only whenever I wanted, which unfortunately wasn't so, but that was just part of the, the poisoning of from, you know, what she was hearing. Um, I have no, I have no ill will towards my daughter, son, you know, but she's, uh, I know if this is fast forward, you know, parenthetically, I'm, I'm remarried. And interestingly enough, my children, at least three out of my, my four children will occasionally respond and communicate with my, with my wife, my now wife, although, you oh, know, wow. yeah, it is very interesting. Like my oldest daughter has never met my wife. But they'll they'll actually communicate on occasion, and my oldest daughter can actually, you know, she is very sweet and very kind to my wife. She won't talk to me. She won't communicate to me. Did they know but, your uh, wife you know, before? Was she no, oh, no, yeah. So it's right. So it's a very interesting dynamic, and you know, so yeah. as I said, I have no ill will towards my daughters. I just recognize that unfortunately. They've been abused. They've been poisoned. They've been brainwashed. Do you think that they talk to her sort of as a way to hurt you and like stick it to you that, oh, well, we'll talk to her instead? Or is it just innocent and they're just they like her? She's a nice person, I'm sure. So maybe they just like talking to her. Or do you think it's like a little more sinister? I'm just curious. That's a great question. But, you know, it's entirely possible. But, you know, you know, but honestly, I at the risk of being pedantic or at the risk of 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 being hoity-toity i opt not to, not to even consider that i just i right, hope right. and i try to be optimistic right well uh, so so uh, sorry let me take a step back i don't have any confidence that i'll ever re- reunite with my daughters myself and you know i'm i wouldn't quite say that i'm at peace with it and but yet i've come to accept mm-hmm. it that right, you know it's right. a very real possibility um unfortunately I, I know of too many situations where alienated parents never reunited with their children they left this world never being reunited so wow. I, I don't have any hope of reunification with my daughters, but yet there's something that still pleases me. Just, you know, that I'm proud of my daughters, like that they're moving, they're creating lives for themselves, that they're, they're, you know, they're, despite the toxicity, that they can still have a relationship with my wife for whatever reason they're choosing to do so, even if it is a way of hurting me, but I'd have to be affected by it. I don't have to allow it to affect me or to, you mm-hmm. know, or to be pained as much as I could. You know, of course, it still hurts. I'm not going to deny that I'm human. You know, it still hurts. I mean, as much as I wish my daughters would be willing to have a relationship with me, I, I think I'm a pretty decent guy. Um, yeah, you sound like a great know, guy. I like, appreciate that. I'm, I'm, I guess I'm, I'm decent enough as much as another woman was willing to marry me. You know, right. You know, so, uh, but at the same time, I recognize that there's only, you know, that the, there's only so much that I can do. You know, I, I have to give my daughters a wide berth of space, which I do. So if they if they choose to have a relationship with me, okay. But if they choose not to and they want to do it, and they want to have a relationship with my wife, for whatever reason, whatever their motivations, even if it is to hurt me, I, I, how would I put this? I you know, not to get off the derails here, but I, I just like philosophically speaking and relationally speaking, we can only really allow we can only be hurt by someone if we allow ourselves to be hurt. And I'm not mm-hmm. at all I'm not at all suggesting that I become cold or placid and devoid of emotions. On the contrary, instead I, I try to constantly reframe and just feel compassion for my daughters. You know, it, it's interesting because again, not to go off the rails here, but like in, in a week from now, 
uh, please God, it won't be true. But the calendar is such that in a week from now, that on the Jewish calendar, we're going to be fasting for the destruction of the walls of Jerusalem, right? Yerushalayim, Shavas Matamas. And and it's and it begins this period of mourning in which we basically we we're supposed to be introspective about the interpersonal mistakes that we've made between other people. And we're supposed mm-hmm. to work on rectifying those things. And we're supposed to, but the whole idea is like we're then moving forward to go through the month of Elul where we where we work on ourselves and self-improvement and self-development with culminated in Rosh Hashanah, where we turn to God, we turn to God and ask him to have mercy on us. How disingenuous is it for me to turn to my father in heaven and ask him to have mercy on me and to overlook my mistakes? but I'm not willing to do that for my own children. Okay. Right. So my children made mistakes. My children, for whatever reason, they don't know the full picture. They don't, they don't, they don't know what's going on. They don't know how much I love them. They don't know how much, how many hours of sleep I continue to lose because I'm constantly thinking about them and how, and how much I speak to their hearts or that I wish I could speak to their heart that I, that I speak to them as though they're, you know, talking to their souls because I want to have a relationship with them and how much I care about them. So they don't know that. And that, and that's Okay. You know, that that's if they choose, that's for that's their journey. But my journey is for me to love them regardless. If I'm asking I call this baruch, if I'm asking the Almighty to love me with compassion and to oversee my and rather to, to overlook my mistakes, mm-hmm. it behooves me to do the same for my own children. Wow, absolutely. And and unfortunately, I'm not, I, I've come across many alienated parents who are so full of anger. And I understand I'm not passing judgment on them. I understand that they're angry. I, I get it because I, there were times where I was angry at my daughters too. Mm-hmm. I think thankfully with a lot of counseling, with a lot of internal work, and it's something that I still continuously work on, come to realization that, you know, they're fallible, they're imperfect, but they're my daughters, they're precious, they're wonderful, they're good kids. They just don't know. One really important thing that I would have done at the beginning, but I think actually it makes more sense now having all the information if someone... If, I listen, if someone's listening and has made it this far in the episode um, to finally, <laughs> I, I, I want to I define what it even means for a child to be alienated. I never I understand this now just from my own experience and research and networking, but like explain it to me before I was ever part of this unfortunate Parsha. I don't understand. Like, why do they hate you? What did what did you do to them? Did you you must have probably abused them or what in their head? What do they think that you did to be such an awful person that even now they're adults? Right? One of uh, like at least one of them's an adult, right? Well, okay. actually, technically speaking, three of them are adults. Okay, so they 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 you know they can Google, they they can read, they. I mean, explain it to someone. Like, how I, I don't understand. How are you alienated if you're a good person? And and what is what are the workings on going on inside their heads that's justifying this? Why can't they just pick up the phone and say, "Hey, Dad, uh, I want to go for pizza." Like, where's the block? What what's blocking that? What hey, is Nathan, it? Nathan, do we do we have another three hours or so? <laughs> Yeah, um, no, I say I, know, I say that tongue in cheek, but it's, but it's a really great question. It's, it's, it's a really it's, important uh, question. It's, it's a college degree. I mean, it's not even a three hours. I, I get it. It's it's a right. I say that tongue in cheek, and it's you know with a bit of jest, but there's a lot of truth. And as much as that, it, it is a very counter, extremely counterintuitive issue. There's something at play called uh, pathological enmeshment, in which a child will develop a relationship with the alienator almost identically as a cult member identifies with the leader of a cult. In fact, the literature, I can't quote anybody off the top of my head right now, but I've definitely seen the literature on parental alienation that parental alienators are very similar to to cult leaders. I will say there is there there are two people in particular, actually three, 
who are really regarded as, I wouldn't say the subject matter experts in parental alienation, but they definitely are amongst the recognized subject matter experts. There's a, a gentleman by the name of Stephen Miller, Dr. Stephen Miller. There's a Dr. Amy Baker, and there's a Dr. Childress. I forget his first name, but they all agree that that in cases, certainly in the cases of extreme parental alienation, that the offender, the alienator, will usually have some kind of personality disorder. But, you know, the children are not aware of that. And the children, therefore, they become enmeshed in, a, in the relationship with the parent where it becomes codependent, but to the extreme. And so mm -hmm. the, the, to the outside observer who's unfamiliar with parental alienation, it will appear as though they have a relationship. As in fact, it all mm -hmm. appears they have a really close, warm relationship. But for those that are aware of what parental alienation is, they'll quickly realize that it's too close of a relationship, that there are very few boundaries. And the the adultification of the children at a young age, unfortunately, creates this dynamic where the children start to identify with the alienator to the point where they feel like they have to protect the alienator, where they have to constantly defend the alienator. And so because it becomes a contentious situation where instead of two co-parents, it's one parent against the other. Well, so the children identify with this one parent, then they that, per, that parent must be the right one. And by definition, if there's someone who's right, then there has to be someone who's wrong. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think framing it like that is, it, it really hits at home. I think most people are aware of cults or just the existence of cults and how large groups of people could just for like no nonsensical reasons, just follow that leader into the most ridiculous situations where they'll, you know, give their lives or, you know, they'll do ridiculous things that, that hurt themselves for a cult leader. And I mean, there was one a couple of years ago, like in the news, I, I don't remember exact details, but there were like just regular actors, actresses like involved who are just otherwise normal people who get sucked into it. And it just doesn't make any sense. Like, why would, why mm -hmm. would these do these things for this guy for no real gain to themselves? Um, on the contrary, it's, unfortunately, it's, it's more than just no real gain. It's, it's typically destructive. Right. I mean, and they'll give it, they'll give them, they'll give control of their lives and their, their bank accounts and. And then sometimes you'll see interviews with these people like a few years later and they're just back to normal. And it's like, what happened? How is this even? So mm -hmm. the, the fact that it could happen, just that we know it exists, like it makes it very easy now to see that, okay, I, I could see if it exists, if it's a mental phenomenon, like, okay, why shouldn't it exist with a parent to a child, with a, with a bit of, with a parent with a disorder to a child? Why would that not happen? Because a lot of people, what I hear is like, well, if you're a good parent, there's you wouldn't be alienated. That's we nonsense. That's, that's, that, that's, right. That's, that's so, so that's utter nonsense and garbage. And in fact, I remember actually one Rosh Hashanah morning several years ago, I was walking with a very well-known child advocate in the from community. Obviously, I'm not going to disclose his name, but you know, he, he considers me a friend and I consider him to be a well-meaning person as well. And he wanted to help me. And I was grateful for it. So he asked me if we can go for a walk before davening, which we did. We were at a we were at a, a, a Yom Tov retreat on Rosh Hashanah. So he turned to me and he said, "So you know, come on, just man to man, like, you know, what kind of abuses did you do to your daughters? Like, this is, I'm not going to tell anyone." And I looked at him and I said, wow. "Rabbi, so and so, uh, uh, come again." He said, to him, "You know, 
look, I, I get it. In a moment of anger, you must have hit your kids. Like you must have yelled at your kids. You must have you must have cursed your kids out. You must have done something. You must have, you know, it's okay. Like, you know, I get it. Like, and you come, maybe you come from a different generation, you know. <laughs> I don't know maybe, maybe you hit your kids with a belt. I'm like, excuse me? Right. Like I, no, yeah, again, yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not at all claiming to be a saint. They're definitely. I, I, I readily acknowledge that I've made mistakes. I definitely have raised my voice towards my children. Yeah, and and for that, I'm terribly yeah. sorry. You know, my children, children do not deserve that. I'm not. Uh, you know, we should. Yes, no, sometimes they do. Acknowledge that. Sometimes right. They, okay, you know, and, and it's, it's right, and for that, I'm sorry. And for that, I'm truly sorry. You know, but but because I made a mistake, and therefore. I deserve to have my children taken away. On the contrary, this is, again, this is what research, and I remember very notably, Dr. Miller has talked about this on several occasions where he said what's so what's so dis- difficult to understand about parental alienation, which is why one of the, what makes it so counterintuitive is that children, even children who are abused, physically abused by their own parents, typically will still want to have a relationship with that parent. What makes mm-hmm. parental alienation so insidious is that most often the alienated parent has not abused the children at all, mm-hmm. you know, and then, and then this person with this same person went on to say, okay, so, you know, like how much money do you owe your ex-wife, you know, for, for child support? I said, I've been paying child support. He, he, he right, stopped. Right. He literally stopped walking. He turned <laughs> to me and said, you mean you've been paying child support? Like, I said, yes. And he, there was, I could just see it on his face. The cognitive dissonance set in. His eyes went wide. He had a far off look. His nose was twitching. I can see. I'm also an EMT, so I, you know I know these things a little bit. I can wow. see that his pulse rate started elevating because I can see. I can see his pulse rate in his neck and his temples start to pitch, mm-hmm. and it started spiking, which is often the, the physiological signs of somebody who's dif- dealing with cognitive dissonance. So I remember he he like he shook his head and he said, "Okay, hold on a second. Let me get this straight. You don't owe anything to your, to your ex-wife." Like if, if as I, if, if I as if that would up, be a justification, anyways, right? Ah, what, oh, beautiful. So I'm <laughs> I'm so glad. Thank you. You walked right into this, which is, I'm so glad you did because. Mm-hmm. So this is something unfortunate that is so insidious in the from world as well that I see, is that in the from world so often I will hear people say, "Hey, well, are you paying child support?" So my response is, I happen to be paying child support. And, and so there were times where I was paying in excess of what I was obligated to pay in child support. That's number one. Number two, even if I was not paying child support, are, do you mean to tell me that we're giving priority of money, of things, of materialism to our children, that we're huh? giving that priority over a relationship with our children? Yeah, I mean, it, so it doesn't make any sense. If if if, right. if, a, if if a father becomes unemployed and just, you know, has a depression in his life, we just take him away like he just gets shipped off because he's not providing anymore. Like it, uh, he, he's uh, it's a life sentence without his children just lose their father. Like, I mean, there are right. fathers who are un, who can't provide for some number of months. Let's say they lose their job. They they get into a rut and it takes a few months to get out of it. And that's like not paying child support. I mean, that is what. Child support is only what you do for your kids just after you get to, it's the same. I mean, every father really should be paying child support, even married fathers who live at home. Like, why don't they pay child support? There's nothing magical about the money you provide just because you now got divorced. And even so, like, how should that be tied to the children being allowed to have the parents? It's it's not like an entry ticket to your. So unfortunately it is, but you're right. You're right, Nathan. It should not be, but unfortunately it is. 
and you think that it would not be or that it should not be in the firm world, but unfortunately, it is much more so. And things are extremely contentious in the firm world. As I said, I, I, I counsel yeah. alienated parents with these issues, or people will confront, you know, try to confront me about these issues very frequently. And I just, you know, I slam that door shut. I mean, I'm not rude, but I, uh, but I'll just check them and say, excuse me, with all due respect, I've been paying child support. I can show you bank statements. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the yeah. interesting thing is, I mean, there have been times where 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 other people have caught my ex in a lie about her lying to them, stating that I was not paying child support. I mean, it's besides it being so irrelevant. I mean, it's just it's just so frustrating. It even comes to people's minds. It has nothing to do with anything. I've I have because of my job, my previous job, rather, I have visited um, convicted criminals in prison who. Mm-hmm who were able to see their children. And the irony is Mm -hmm. that I was visiting people who were behind bars and counseling them as they're sitting there with their significant other or former significant others who are there with their children for visitation. But all the while I'm not behind bars. I'm not a criminal and I don't get, I don't get to see my children. I don't get to talk to my children. The, the incongruity huh, of it is just crazy. mind-blowing. Yeah, that's just unbelievable sitting there, you know, that thought running through your head. Right, I recognize <sighs> also that, that that this podcast is mo- is mostly uh, framed for men, and I appreciate that. But at the same time, you know, I do try to keep things somewhat level and acknowledge as well that there's that there's a great preponderance, unfortunately, a growing preponderance of alienation in the from world against from women. And and sometimes you know men will will use the pitiful excuse that she's you know that the mother's no longer as observant as I want her to mm-hmm. be is no longer as observant as she should be. Well, hold on a second. So, and therefore that's mm-hmm. justification to rip the children out of their mother away from their mother. Why? Because the mother, mm-hmm. for whatever reason, she's she's choosing to no longer cover her hair, or she now she wears pants. Mm-hmm. That's justification for ripping children away from their mother. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, actually, this is the platform. Let's uh, to, if you see that, if uh, that I like, do, unfortunately, so, so you know, I, that should I be called out. It. That should be called out. It's it's not a men versus women thing at all. Any, anyways, it's uh, it's, right. And, and I and you're so spot on. I appreciate it. I'm, that, that's exactly what I continue to try to tell people is that often you'll hear people kind of like what I said earlier, the very beginning that people will make it into this a gender thing of toxic masculinity. Toxic. Right. No, there are unfortunately there are alienated mothers in the form world as well there and, and the numbers are growing be sure and they just want to love their children the pain the anguish the suffering of not being able to have their children is overwhelming mm-hmm. i know because you know again i'm not i don't want anyone feeling sorry for me at all i'm just sharing this with you because i think there's value and because i know that struggle myself is that several years ago it wasn't the only contributing factor, but it was an overwhelming contributing factor because my daughters were alienated from me. I almost took my own life. Wow. I, yeah, I, without getting to too many specifics, but I was planning for suicide by cop. Wow. And I, wow. and I spent two and a half days crying my eyes dry, begging and pleading with a college begging and pleading with the almighty to give me a reason to stay alive and thank god with his, with his overabundant mercy i had this realization i had this thought of something that i had promised myself when i'd first gotten divorced and that is i would never intentionally do anything to hurt my daughters despite me being alienated from them despite me not having to do with them 
But I told myself and I promised myself years ago that I would never intentionally do anything to hurt my daughters. And Baruch Hashem, you know, thank God in his infinite loving kindness, he reminded me of that, so to speak, that I'd made that sacred oath, that promise years ago. And at that point, I realized, okay, you know what? I have to, I have to stay true to that promise. Despite wow. my own it's pain, a, yeah. And so, you know, I had, despite my own pain, I, I, I it, it, because my daughters, it would be so devastating. The shame and the grief, the suffering, would be overwhelming to them. It, it can, it, it could potentially destroy them. And so, yeah. from that moment on, I, I told myself that I would never even try to, to do anything remotely close. And sure enough, I'm even last year, my second daughter got married. I was not invited, but my ex being what I believe to be extremely deceptive, she put my name on the invitation, hmm. but I was not invited. I didn't find out until it was too late. And I was intentionally not invited because they did not want me there. But when I found out about it, it was, it was a struggle and I was feeling despondent and I was feeling suicidal again as well. And I remember at one point I was just so overwhelmed and my wife who had never been married before, um, you know, doesn't have children. And so remember, she looked at me once and she said, you know, what can I do? And I said, I appreciate the offer. It's very sweet of you, but you won't understand right now. And she said, so just tell me where you're at. I said, honestly, I don't want to be here. She said, what do you mean? I said, I do not want to be in this world anymore. Um, she said, are you planning to do anything? I said, no. I said, Baruch Hashem, when I had this episode five and a half years ago, I made a solemn promise again just as I did 13 years ago that I would never intentionally do anything to hurt my children. Now we're married and I give you that solemn promise as well, that I've never intentionally do anything to hurt you. Never do intentionally do anything to hurt my children. I feel despondent. I feel suicidal, but I promise you I'm not going to do anything. I'm just telling you how I feel. And I share this with you, with you, Nathan, as well as the listeners, because unfortunately the pain of parental alienation, is not just an issue that me, Josh has, but this is something that I have encountered time and time again, that mothers and fathers are so heartbroken. They're so crushed. They're so completely, div there's a part of them that is so intrinsic about being a human being, about being a parent that has been torn from them, that they don't want to be here anymore because that, that, that part of who they are has been destroyed. The pain is just unimaginable. I, I mean, I can keep it going on, but so, so like, for example, if I can, if I can, no, I, some, I, some, wait, before, before some, you get, I just, it's just a good opportunity. I was yeah, just thinking no, like, please, if, I'm I sorry. Just, no, I just wanted to just stick in there that if somebody's listening and like they're going through this, I'm, I'm sure there's, you know, hope, you know, in the future, hopefully this could help someone. Hopefully nobody's go th goes through this, but just in case pain will be overwhelming at, at, at some points. I remember with me, it was, it was lighting the menorah in a, in, in just an empty blank apartment, just where I got a place to sleep and just lighting the menorah there with where for all the years previously, it was, uh, you know, lighting the menorah, putting up the stickers and, and singing and then just being in a dark apartment all alone, you know, and if if uh, suicidal thoughts definitely creep in and yes, uh, in, in a way, you know, I, I know somebody who I used to be close with who went was going through this sort of thing and he overdosed and he died and mm. he wasn't a drug person at all before. And like, right. you know, I don't know how to put somebody to it. 
yeah and if i if i would have had easy access to something at th that night I, it's it's kind yeah. of it's possible i might have th 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 like thank god i did i don't i don't own a gun and i didn't have any and it just like i just sat with it um luckily at the time i actually had just gone to an event where i met a few other guys who were divorced and, and we ended up all like we texted each other and we all decided we're going to light together on zoom so we mm. all logged in and i redid the lighting and and there was something just that kept me going there. And I just want to just Beautiful. say to anybody that, you know, the wave is going to hit you and it's just going to hurt like hell. But like you just have the Muna, it, it will, the wave will pass and 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 just absorb the pain. It's just going to be so painful and just take it. No, you're you're exactly you right. And, and you know, you're spot on, absolutely spot on. And that's really what it is. It's just a matter of leaning into your pain and feeling whatever you feel and although it it feels like it's insurmountable, just ride that wave. You know, it's fascinating yeah. that when I was growing up, I remember reading and learning really about this episode with Yaakov Avinu, our patriarch Jacob and, and Yosef, Joseph. And that when after after Yosef was sold by his brothers, that the Yaakov lost the ability. We call it Ruach HaKodesh, of being able to see things with the Holy Spirit of, of divine inspiration. And what's really notable is that Rashi, our great commentator, tells us on that spot that the reason why Yaakov was not only mourning and grieving, but in fact, the, the verse, the Pasuk tells us that Yaakov refused to be comforted. Why Rashi comments and says, because Yaakov had no closure. And so it's interesting because for years when I was growing up, I always was taught that Yaakov was punished, that he lost through Ruach HaKodesh. And I came to the realization that it's just not so. Mm -hmm. It's not that Yaakov okay. was punished. It wasn't like Hashem punished Yaakov for his grief and for his mourning. It's just a reality. Mm -hmm. The reality is that because he was so broken mm -hmm. and because he mourned and grieved his love, his son, his cherished son, so much so, and that he had no closure that he wasn't in his right state of mind to then be able to think things through objectively and with a, with a level of, of spiritual awareness necessary to receive Ruach HaKodesh. He wasn't punished. Mm -hmm. The Torah is just right. telling us this is a state of beings. This, this is the state of affairs. Mm -hmm. yeah, and by the way, that too was sense. a case of parental alienation. Now, albeit in the sense that it was it wasn't parents, it wasn't one parent pitted against another. In this case, unfortunately, mm -hmm. it was the brothers who initially alienated Yosef and Yaakov. Mm -hmm. But it was alienation. Let's make no mistake about it. Mm. Interesting, right? It was a campaign. It was a campaign of deception to keep a child from a parent and a parent from a child. Unfortunately, from the brothers, it had gotten way too out of hand where they couldn't, at that point, they couldn't rein it in. They, they, there was no way to, to their knowledge to be able to then rectify it after they, mm -hmm. they'd, they'd realized their mistake. Well, they, they, they were trying to punish Yosef, not trying to hurt Yaakov. Of, of, of course. I agree. And again, I don't want to get too far into the weeds. Right, but right, I'm right, only right, sharing right. this in the context of understanding what parental alienation is. Is yeah. that still, right? And, and so when I'm going back, it's interesting because I shared this insight with this aforementioned child advocate and as well like he also he was he was stupefied into silence and, and again i don't mean stupefied in an insulting way he was just yeah 
once again, not not stupidified, walking, stupefied. Yeah. Exactly right. He stopped walking mid-step when I shared this with him, and I remember him putting his hands to his face with this, you know, with this overwhelming realization of what I shared. I don't think I'm a Talmud Chacham. I don't think I'm, uh, you know, a particularly learned person. But I, I, I do try to be introspective. I try to be self-aware. I recognize the mistakes that I've made. And also look at things, even in our sacred writings, in our Kisve Kodesh, that, that are pointing to the, the certain realities. You know, I mean, I can go on and on. You know, there are many other instances of, of parental alienation, you know, with the, which have been overt. I, right now, mm-hmm. I'm struggling mightily to try to get mental health professionals in the, in the Orthodox community to take an honest look. I mean, somewhat... Kind kind of interestingly enough, um, my therapist, who is fantastic, much to his credit, about five years ago, after when I started working with him, he was not aware of parental alienation. He wasn't aware of what mm-hmm. it was at all. And I remember turning to him and I said, "You know, please understand that if we're going to continue to work together, I need you to, and I, I, I just need you to understand what parental alienation is." He's okay, so mm-hmm. educate me, right. I, I, right? And and he's the therapist, and he's asking me to educate him. And to mm-hmm. his great credit, I started sending him articles. I started sending him studies. I started sending him videos, YouTube, you know, YouTube lectures and presentations. And he just started consuming all of this. And now he's become incredibly great at it. And he's trying, you know, he's trying as well the challenge conventions within the Orthodox community, particularly with mental health professionals and all the rabbis and rabbinim and, and, and educators. It's interesting, but like, I, I, you know, I, I, in fact, I had reached out to the director of the local Jewish Family Services, and we happen to know each other in the community as well. And um, I told him about this, what I like to refer to as a growing cancer within the Orthodox community. And so a few weeks later, he came to me and um, he said, you know, I really appreciate you bringing it to my attention. I had heard about it, but I had no idea. And then two weeks ago at Shul, he came over to me at Kiddush and he said, Sure enough, because God sometimes has a sense of humor, I have, I'm working with a client right now who is an alienated mm-hmm. father. And had you not told me about parental alienation, I would have completely misread it and I would have absolutely screwed this up for my client. Wow. Probably happens all the time. A great deal, it, right? Yeah. So it's interesting. So, so we started getting to a conversation as far as the justifications wow. for children not to, not to be with their parent. They said, well, with all due respect, you know what I what I hear about all the time in in the, in the divorced world, like in divorce forums for for from divorcees, is you constantly hear people say, "Oh, my ex, he was a narcissist. My ex, oh, she was borderline personality. My ex was a sociopath. My ex was, you know, so on and so forth." And I turned to this fellow. I said, "You know, in extreme cases, sometimes there might actually be a personality disorder, but why is it ever justification to remove children from that parent?" So why don't we just push for a supervised visitation if need be? And he said, you know what? It so happens, Josh, that this client that I'm dealing with just said the same thing about himself. He does have a personality disorder. And he said, mm-hmm. okay, fine. So I have a personality disorder, but why can't I see my children? So I have, I'm, I'm open to, to, to supervised visitation. If you're so concerned about me and that I'm going to ruin my kids, so have a third party, have an objective third party. Obviously, there, aren't, there are things that I won't be able to have my children by myself in my home. So if it means that we have to go to a neutral environment where there's an objective third party who's watching me parent my children, then so be it. But to deny me completely I mean, of seeing my children? Yeah, I mean, to, uh, the supervised hesitation, I mean, is, is itself 
a really last resort horrible thing that's so overused. Of course. But but I mean, yeah, if, if it's going to be nothing, then, you know, at least what's wrong with that? How dangerous of a person is he? He's walking around on the street. There's kids around. Is he that dangerous that they can't even he can't see his own children in one of these like supervisation, sup- whatever, supervised like rooms, which are which are horrible again. But it's like, yeah, it bothers me when, when someone's can't is not allowed to see their own children because they're dangerous, but they can still hang out with their nephews and like there's no order against them being with children it, it, it's it just kind of doesn't make any sense to me right um, the, the only the only justification that i think is ever in play why children should not be allowed to see a parent is in the case of sexual abuse to- or, towards children. Or, or physical abuse to- towards I mean, children. um i respectfully disagree because even with physical, if even if there's a case of physical abuse, so long as the so long as the parent is in therapy and so long as the children are okay with seeing the parent, then you can set up a dynamic where they're in family therapy and you can have supervised visitation, even if when it comes to physical abuse. Hmm. The only time that I would ever say it's justified is because when it comes to sexual abuse, the trauma is so great and so deep. Mm-hmm. Then that that, that I, I don't especially when it comes to particularly with sexual trauma and sexual abuse, too often the 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 recidivist rate is too great that I would I would not want to risk children with that parent who's the the sexual offender. Whereas a, it's much mm-hmm. less so when it comes to physical abuse and as well. When it comes to physical abuse, again, if you have a third party, an objective third party who's there for supervised visitation until the parent has proven him or herself to be able to parent the children appropriately on their own then fine to have a third party what's the problem mm-hmm. right that's the i never thought about that but that, that makes a lot of sense to me mm-hmm. yeah again not to pat myself on the back the, the, there, there are a lot of things that unfortunately are, are that are taken as givens in the from community that i i mm-hmm. find myself frequently challenging people you know right because... and also just as a disclaimer like we're talking about sexual abuse, sure. abuse that that's not even like most of the parental alienation cases are, are not even don't even involve that nowadays so like i don't want to cloud it by just making it sound like that is representative at all it's it's really sadly not it's these uh, these alienation cases are you know vindictive ex-spouses it's a it's a war right. the children are just these weapons in this in these wars and i mean i've talked about that in a couple of other episodes and it's a mm-hmm. it's a whole it's a whole other i i spoke to a, a lawyer recently and that episode is going to come out um Mm. about how the the legal system incentivizes these these kinds of wars. Oh my gosh, terribly. Which... So if I'm sorry, if if I may interject. So I'm sure. glad you mentioned this because to, you know to, to circle back if you will about the the conversation that we talked about when it comes to child uh, child support. Why do you think there's such a focus on child support because of the courts? There's something called Title 4 I won't get into all the specifics, mm-hmm. but there's something called Title IV, which basically allows the, the family court system to operate independently of the, the rest of the legal system. So they operate on their own, as well as that the more child support that passes through the family court system, the more money the family court system makes. So these judges and these attorneys' retirements are being funded by child support and specifically by these contentious cases. So their vested interest Mm-hmm. is to maintain the, these issues as it pertains to, to custody and child support. Right. The, the, uh, the, the conflict basically directly affects them, like benefits them. Classic right. misaligned incentives. 
Right, which is what drives me crazy because in the Frum community, we're constantly talking about children and about how committed we are to our children. And yet, mm-hmm. when it comes to parental alienation, where's the outcry? By, by way of sure. example, why don't we hear about workshops, public workshops to support alienated parents? Why don't we hear about lectures in schools, schools, community centers on parental alienation, like other social ills that we hear that are being confronted in, in the from world? Why aren't there from mental health professionals who are collected taking action to prevent parental alienation? Why are mm-hmm. why you know how many from how many from therapists do I know that ha- are actually trained as a subspecialty in parental alienation? I only know of one, and he lives in mm-hmm. Canada. Is that a born um, claim? Pardon me. Is that Abe Warren Klein? Yes. Mm-hmm. He's the only sure. one in the entire front community. And yet, unfortunately, you know, it's, inter- it's interesting, right? Because when I, I don't know how you are, how old you are, Nathan, as I said, I'm mid 40s, right? So when I was mm-hmm. growing up, the divorce rate in the, in the Orthodox community was approximately 5%. Okay. There, nowadays, there are numbers that, that I've seen that, okay, that for, by way of example, that OHEL mentioned in 2015. That the rate of divorce in the Jewish world has risen to thirty percent. Okay, the Orthodox so words, the, world. The, yes, really, that sounds very yeah. high. It sounds very high, but you know what? It's it's crazy because I continue to meet more and more people who are divorced. So here's the thing. Fine. So even if you don't want to say that it's thirty percent, maybe my data is wrong, but it's certainly above ten percent. I would say that makes sense. All right. So, all right. So, so if you're going to be gracious, which I appreciate and grant me that, that my data is wrong, but you're still going to go with 10%. That means regardless that the divorce rate in the past 25 years has doubled. Okay. Mm-hmm. What's yeah. really interesting is that, that there was in, in, in several years ago, I don't remember exactly, but it was, it was certainly within the past 10 years, Jewish action magazine had mentioned that 57% of Orthodox divorces are highly contentious or acrimonious. You don't mm-hmm. think that the rate of parental alienation in the Jewish community has grown also? Of course it has. Mm-hmm. Sure. So what steps are we taking in the front community to, to prevent this? We're not, unfortunately. So unfortunately, so tragically, as a result, those of us who are alienated are constantly relying on each other for support, but we're not, we're, we're relying on each other for support, but what steps? We're, we cannot do this our own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'm very happy that we're coming back to this because I think this is a good final question. This is where I want to, I wanted to get to, and this sure. has been an amazing episode. And I think we could probably go for another few hours easily. Absolutely, because <laughs> but, I'm, but yes, I'm very passionate we, about. Yeah, this. we right, we will, and, we will and, speak and I again. say that because because uh, because you know years ago I used to be one of those people who would absolutely in a in a heartbeat rail against anyone who is an alleged aguna. I'm sorry, an alleged um, get refuser. Yeah. Unfortunately, my experience has taught me that that there are plenty of men who are alleged get refusers or not truly get refusers is that that it's an act of desperation. They do not actually want to hurt their exes or their their still wives or their children, but it's an act of desperation. A conversation mm-hmm. perhaps for another time, but mm-hmm. it's just something to think about. I'm just throwing it out there. Uh, if the truth is in most get refuser cases I've heard of in the last few years where I originally thought that the guy was a get refuser. As I looked more into the case, none of them were actual get refusers. There were no vindictive husbands just trying to get uh, extort money from, from the, like, you know, with that classic case. No, on the contrary, they just wanted to see their kids. They're just guys who just want to see their almost kids. Almost all of them custody. wanted to see their children and then they were being denied that right. That's yeah. That's pretty much there's, there are the odd famous cases where it's like 20 years and there's, 
you know there's right. a, there's a couple of like uh where they have a grainy photo of the guy from like the 70s and they're like yeah his wife's still in aguna those are just horrible cases but those are like really one every few years in the entire right. jewish world right um, and the interesting thing is on occasions even those extreme situations what i try to discover sometimes there have been allegations of rent parental alienation as well but to your point if i was able to have a conversation with these these men i would say at okay it's been x number of years just do yourself a favor just let it go mm-hmm. give for the, give just give her the get to move on yeah if, i imagine to, it's not that to move simple on. because it's become part of them at this point of, and, of course uh, you know, again, whatever. i totally whole, agree with you nathan yeah, 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 i absolutely agree and concur i am mm-hmm. certainly overgeneralizing. Right, 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 right but I, as i said That's i've good. had i've had occasion where i've had men call me up and and some of them heartfully and, and with tears, they'd actually want to give the get, but they also recognize the moment they give the get, they'll never see their children again. So what do they do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's what happened to you, it sounds like. Uh, with me, it was different because I never kept the, I never kept the get from my ex. I'm talking right, about situations right, 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 where right. guys actually well, right, maybe where you guys are, are accused of being get refusers and they really were not get refusers. They just right. knew the moment they gave the get, they're basically saying so, goodbye to their kids. Right. Wait, so, okay, I want to I want to pull yeah, back because so, um, the last thing I think this is a good thing to end off with is you, you mentioned at one point you said like, well, where's the outcry in the community and all that? And I know the answer. I think, you know, the answer, too, is that is that when it comes to uh, get, for example, or sexual abuse, like these are things where you can like it's actionable. It happened. It's a fact. And we we can establish that it happened and we know who the guilty party is. It's all very clear. He didn't give a get. That's all there is to know the, when it comes to alienation, I think it's, um, well, it's like, no one knows, like, you know, is it really alienating? Because she says that he's abusive and he's a narcissist. And like, maybe she's right. Like, I don't know. I don't want to get involved. I, I, no one really knows. There's no established fact that it's very hard for anyone to ask anyone to start making an outcry. So like, what are your ideas about that? How do we make it socially unacceptable do we encourage people to ask the single mother and say like, hey, well, where's the father? Like, should that be like something people say? Should that like, how do we create this community environment where it's awkward to for even for a single dad? Where, where's the mother? Like, it should be awkward for him. It should be like something he should feel weird about or she should feel strange about. Where's the other parent? Like, why don't I ever see? Uh, why does it seem like when we go to Abu Subhanim, uh, the father and son learning program, a lot of weeks, the father is not with him. Is that, are you preventing him? You know what I'm saying? Like, who's going to ask these things? Who wants to like delve into these kind of details with other people? People, these flying monkeys, they they don't, I, I don't think they really know the details and delve in. I think they just kind of, it's so difficult and they it, it's, it's so delicate. And they want to just assume that the one, the parent that they're friendly with and that they know, they want to just support that person. And there's, it's, it's hard. What, what should they do? Like, what, what are your ideas about? It? I don't really have any good ideas. I, I'm just wondering if, if you do, if you've thought about that side of the problem. Are you familiar yeah. with Elie Wiesel's quote, Elie Wiesel, Zichron Levracha? Sure. His quote about silence? I, I, maybe. So he said the following. It's not verbatim, but he said something to the effect of that silence never helps the oppressed or those that are, being, that are suffering. Silence only helps the oppressor. Mm-hmm. And so therefore you have to take sides because neutrality only helps the oppressor and never the victim. Silence therefore encourages torment and never the tormented. Silence only helps the one who's inflicting the pain, the hurt, 
and the damage, never the one who's being hurt, mm-hmm. who's being damaged. Mm-hmm. Sounds uh, pretty common sense. Right. But unfortunately, that's not what's happening. So if you want something more concrete, okay, let's take a step back. It's kind of interesting mm-hmm. how it kind of goes full circle, right? When it comes mm-hmm. to Shadokim, okay, when it comes to setting mm-hmm. up matches in the firm world, and the truth is not even not even in the firm world, even in the non-Jewish world, when couples get together or the possibility of a couple getting together, you typically want to do some background checking just a little bit. Certainly in the firm world, it happens extensively. You start asking questions. You call up a third party or perhaps what you think is a third party. You start asking questions. Unfortunately, as we know, sometimes people hide things. Some people are not even hide things intentionally, but sometimes things, things are not readily available. But the point is that you're still asking questions. Why is it that when it comes to parental alienation, we don't ask the question? So this is something I share with my therapist. And this is and this is something that I, I have shared with anyone who's willing to hear. And that is when you hear of a situation in which one parent says the other parent is not involved, mm-hmm. every red flag and every alarm should be going off in your head immediately. Mm-hmm. Do not accept that at face value. You need to be asking yourself, is this really true? And if this mm-hmm. is the case where the other parent is not involved, why is that the case? And then I want to speak to that other parent mm-hmm. who's allegedly right. not involved. I want to find out so I can get a holistic picture. Case in point. I know this is the end uh, or towards the end of our of our conversation, but case in point. When my old when my I'm sorry, when my daughter got married last year, okay. So my therapist noticed that a relative of his was involved in, in peripherally with my ex-wife and supporting my ex-wife in certain ways. In, okay. He, he, this, this gentleman, my, my, my therapist cousin is a, is a well-known personality in that community. So my therapist called up his cousin. He said, you know, do you realize that there's a whole other side that you don't know? Mm-hmm. And so to this gentleman's great, credit he said i wasn't aware i just i was just constantly and always told that josh is not in the picture and he's he's uh, abandoned the children wow so tell me and my therapist then said and started sharing details and, and this gentleman said to his cousin my therapist he said well how do you know it's true and my therapist said because i've seen the evidence i've seen mm-hmm. the emails where mrs so-and-so has openly denied and made excuses to keep the children from josh I've seen hmm. I've seen memos from Josh's bosses in which Mrs. So-and-so called up and lied to his boss about denial of child support. I've seen the oh. evidence. Oh, wow. Right. So That's... then this individual said, you know, I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, at this point, I'm not sure what I, what I can do if there's really is anything I can do. So my point, though, is that when you hear when you hear of situations where the allegations of a parent not being in the picture, you need to ask questions. Is this really yeah. true? Why is it? Why is it so? And how do I get to speak to the other parent? Wait, but but the I only need thing to is, speak to that other parent. I I agree with you, uh, like thousands of percent. It, it just in terms of that being used. Oh, they're not involved. Like we have to hold each other accountable. I'm just wondering what would be. I'm thinking in my head, like on, in a shidduch call, how would that play out? How would that necessarily benefit your daughter if, like, then the shidduch gets called off? Like, is it is that overall uh, good uh, for her? Oh, 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 okay. I'm sorry. Sorry. Let, let me clarify. I'm, my, my point is, when I was mentioning as far as a shidduch, 
I was saying that just like before we start a shit up, before oh, oh, we start okay. a potential match, we start asking questions and we inquire about each respective side. Oh, you're just so comparing too, when we hear about, we need to start asking questions. We need to be inquisitive. We need to start digging. As mm-hmm. far as my daughters, you're right. Unfortunately, situations like this is it's it's yeah it's it's a very difficult situation. As far as you know, it's it's entirely possible that my oldest daughter may have missed out on, on a shidduch or two because somebody found out that I'm allegedly not in the picture, that I have allegedly abandoned my daughters, and somebody said thanks but no thanks. Or, you know, or because my own daughter believes that I've abandoned her. My daughter believes that I flit in and out of her life at my own volition. No, but on the flip side, there probably would also be people who would, even if they heard the truth, like they dug in and then they found out that really her mother alienated the father and got rid of him. And on that basis, they don't want the shit because it's a crazy mother. Who wants a crazy mother-in-law? So, yeah, you know, right. Right. So, so, so it's interesting because when I was dating, when I first started dating my wife now, you know, uh, two years ago, a little more than two years ago, she too had had some, you know, she had some reservations, but I, I had with another woman, I had made the mistake of too hastily being very open about it. And then this woman backed off and said, you know, thanks, but no thanks. So with my wife, I didn't hide anything or I wasn't deceptive, but I told her, I said, you know, there, those are all fair questions. And I will answer you if we get to that point of our relationship. I'm not trying to dangle a carrot in front of you. It's just that right now, I think we have a really good thing going. I'm just not comfortable sharing that part of my life with you. But when the, if, when the time comes, I will be very forthcoming. I'll be completely honest with you about my relationship with my daughters. And mm-hmm. Baruch Hashem, we got to that point. And when I shared with, with my wife, you know, she, she intellectually understood. And to her great credit, she got that she doesn't get it. Mm-hmm. Com- wow. you know, um, yeah, but, you know, she was incredibly group. compassionate and empathetic. And and then this is a, that's a separate episode I think about dating sure. as an alienated parent. That's a right. whole topic which uh, I'm sure has it's it's so unique. You know, it's it's hard dating someone because as we said, like there's stigmas about it. Like, what's wrong with you? What did you do to them? You know, that people just mm-hmm. are clueless, not for their fault. It's just there isn't an awareness about it. But I think we should conclude there. This has been a really okay. um, a, amazing episode. I mean that like it was really in, enriching, and it was uh, you know so raw and real and firsthand. I definitely want to speak to you again and I want to keep in touch in general and uh, sure. I hope you'll come back and uh, I really wish you all the best. And I, I hope. Amen. Uh, Thank I, you. I, yeah. And I, I, I will daven for you and I hope your daughters uh, will, it will come to them uh, somehow. Hashem will send them. Hashem has messengers. It will, their hearts. There, there are lots of stories, lots of encouraging stories out there. Lots of painful ones, but there's lots of encouraging ones. And if you just, you know, you keep at it and you just do your part, hopefully things will. Uh, I, I really just hope that they'll they'll see what an amazing father they had and what they missed out on, and you'll be able to rebuild something. And especially there'll be grandchildren, Amir Tzashem, and um, it should it should all it'll all be in the past one day. And to all Thank alienated you parents, very much. you're welcome. Thank you very much. You're you're, you're doing God's work. you're doing holy work. Don't Thank you. Don't that either. All right. Thank you so much. Okay. Okay. Have a good night, Josh. All the best to you. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Let's Get Serious podcast. Please like, subscribe, and share this podcast with your friends and family. Help us reach more men in our community and help them navigate their relationships and build the best lives for themselves and their loved ones.